Guns don't kill people, bullets kill people. If you put up a slide that has 82% text, everybody's going to check out. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we tell you how to make a PowerPoint presentation that actually doesn't suck. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 31. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Greetings, Dan. Hey, Josh. What's happening? Not much. Another week. Here we are. This is going to be a good one. I'm excited about this topic. Yeah, this is going to be a great topic. Presentations. Yep. So let us get going with some ethanol. As usual, it's something special. That's right. I was going to say... Dan, I'm really excited about the beer this week, but I say that almost every Pretty week. Pretty much every week we are excited about the beer. What did you get for us? Well, it's really true this week because, Dan, I know your favorite beer is... An IPA an of IPA. any variety. Well, I happen to have an IPA this week for you, but I also know two of your favorite beers are the IPA and coffee stout. I like coffee. Uh, same bitter flavor, so... Those are two two bonuses for me. Well, two of my favorite brews are the Coffee Stout and the IPA. So what I have here, Dan, is the Star Hill Brewery Debut Coffee IPA. Wow, this is going to be exciting. Now yeah. that you got this out of a growler, I saw. Yeah, so I was uh, with a friend over at my local growler filling station, which if you have a growler filling station near you, you should check it out. This one has 42 taps. If only they were as convenient as gas stations, we'd really be somewhere. <laughs> That's true. Could not resist a coffee IPA, and I liked it so much that I went back to get a growler so we could have it here on the show. What do you think? I think it's great, and and I'm glad that it's nice and cold because you would not want this one to warm up. You've got the, the double bitter going on. Yeah, but you know, I feel like it's balanced really well. It's not overwhelming to me. Yeah, the little sweetness in the back. It's, it's quite tasty. I expected it to be black colored. It's not. No, it's a beautiful amber color. I love the color of this beer. We got it here in the glass. And again, Beauty the Growler. This is not bottled a long time ago. This came fresh out of the tap uh, yesterday, I think. And Star Hill is in Crozet, Virginia? Crozet, Virginia. I believe that's near Charlottesville. Looks like Crozet. I assumed it was Crozet. You corrected me. It is Crozet from my home state. Wonderful beer. If you get a chance, check it out. Before we jump into the PowerPoints, there was a study that I saw from a couple weeks back that I had to share with you. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, so we're going to talk about doing presentations today, but another type of communication that's super important in science is writing. I've heard. I've heard writing is important. Do you like writing? Um, yeah, sometimes I like writing. It, it depends on what I'm writing about. I, I didn't really like writing about topics that I was unfamiliar with when I was a scientist. But You know, I love, actually love writing. I don't mind the writing part. I don't mind the presentations part either. But I thought this study uh, that focused on scientific writing was kind of interesting. So this paper is called, I know this is going to sound super interesting, Effects of Disfluency in Writing. <laughs> oh, oh, are we are we still recording? <laughs> so let me break it down what what this actually means. So this came from some Canadian researchers. This was in the British Journal of Psychology in January, and their take-home message was that writing slower 
actually made you write better. Writing slower than what? Than you normally do. Okay. Okay. So the idea was they had three experiments and they took groups of undergraduates, the population of human beings we know the most about, <laughs> Obviously, because you're required to participate in research. I, I did that. It was fun. That's right. So they took these undergrads and they told them to write essays. All right. And there were a few different essays. So they wrote essays normally on a computer, typing as they as they typically would. But then they also had groups of undergraduates write essays using only one hand. On the computer? Yeah. So they were typing with only one hand instead of normally with two hands, okay. forcing them to type slower. They analyzed the writing of these undergrads who typed at normal speed with two hands and the undergrads who typed with one hand and found that in a few measurable categories, including sophistication of vocabulary, the students who typed with only one hand uh, had more sophisticated vocabulary in their writing. Okay, wait a second. Did they determine, did they make them decide which hand to type with? Because isn't there a left brain, right thing going on? And um, you type with your right hand, you're getting your left brain. I would imagine they typed with their dominant hand. Oh, okay. I'm I'm just adding the confounding variables here. I'm trying to figure this one out. So the conclusion that they tried to come to by forcing these individuals to type slower, it actually gave their brain more time to think about what they were actually writing. Okay. Better experiment. You ready for this? I'm ready. You have the undergrads type normal, and then you put them in snow gloves. So you're still two-handed, <laughs> but you're really going to have a hard time. You put them in those mittens like my yeah, kids you wear. Get, you get mittens. Where all the fingers are in the same hole. And that'll slow them down, but they'll still be using two hands because I'm concerned about the left brain, right brain thing. I think uh, which has been disproven several times, but yeah. I'm going to stick to it. Well, something that I took from this was, you know, we type so much, like so much of our communication now, you know, whether we're texting or writing emails or, or whatever it is. And I don't know, maybe there is something to the, the slowing down and, and thinking more. I've actually heard of some, some writers, people who are professional writers, who still will write longhand. They'll write with an actual pen and paper for that very reason because they claim that writing by typing, they don't think as clearly or as thoroughly I mean, if you take this to the extreme, right, text messaging, you can have really stupid conversations entirely in emoji now. So speed <laughs> all the way at the maximum, and you are not saying anything of value. It's true. So maybe if you're out there and you know, you're know you hitting a snag uh, in your writing, maybe try typing with one hand or even writing it out on a notebook paper. I don't know. I'm going to run to the store and get some mittens. All right. Let's talk about our topic of the day, PowerPoint presentations. Specifically, PowerPoint presentations that don't suck. You know, it's very easy to make a PowerPoint presentation that does suck. Yeah, that title tends to make me think, Dan, that you have seen some PowerPoint presentations that do suck. I think most PowerPoint presentations I've seen do suck. I actually was going to ask, have you seen a PowerPoint presentation that did not suck? Yes, I have. I have. And they are inspiring. When you see one, you know it. You're talking about my dissertation, right? Your dissertation was quite good. Uh, but I think the majority of of us in science just don't give it a second thought, right? You kind of slap together a couple of slides, you throw your figures in there, and you give the presentation. Uh, but you can really elevate your talk and, and do it without a lot of extra work, I think. Yeah, and I'm glad that we're going to talk about this today and give some tips because you know I will say, Dan, one of my pet peeves are terrible presentations because if you think about 
really the point of science is to share knowledge, right? And a bad presentation, you know, how many presentations have you been to where by about 15 minutes in, maybe 10% of the audience is still tracking with the speaker? Yeah, I I used to sit all the way in the back of seminar and I'd have a crossword puzzle kind of hidden in my lap because if the person didn't catch me in the first 10 minutes, like you say, I was out of it. And then maybe they said something brilliant. Maybe they had discovered something totally amazing, but I you know, I couldn't follow them and I didn't want to follow them. Yeah, and I always would think if there was a room full of, let's say, 75 scientists and 60 of them are completely zoned out. What a waste of time yeah. and brain power. You do the right? math on the number of people <laughs> hours wasted in a, in a bad seminar. So, so what's the opposite side of that? I mean, this is cast as a very negative, like making a PowerPoint that doesn't suck. But, but the other side of it is, if you are doing really great science, you can get people's attention and, and people will want to collaborate with you. Um, they will want to invite you places. They may want to give you jobs because you can communicate it. It doesn't help if you can't communicate it. Yeah, Dan, I would argue that the vast majority of people out there actually are doing interesting science. I mean, most of us are working on science that's funded, that multiple people thought of would be a good thing to do. So chances are it is really cool. It is really useful, but we need to make sure that we can get that across. We can get that impact and that importance across to an audience who doesn't work on it day to day. Yep. So you, everybody listening is giving presentations. I know you are. You're giving committee meetings. You're doing defenses. You're doing lab meetings, seminars, job talks, things like that. So what I want to give is some really specific advice about how to make those, specifically the PowerPoints that you're going to use, better. Yeah. So just to be clear, there are a lot of directions we could go with this. And in the future, we will certainly talk about other facets of giving a presentation. But today we are specifically talking about how to make better slides. The PPT or the PPTX or whatever the file format is these days. All right, let's jump into it, Dan. So what are my first considerations? Okay, what you're going to you're going to be tempted to sit down and start dragging your figures into a slide and kind of putting them in order. And I want you not to do that because there's a little bit of prep work you can do that are going to it's going to save you hours and hours and hours. So first off, figure out what your talk is about. Are you doing a lab meeting or a job talk or a seminar or whatever it happens to be? It's about science. I know what it's about, but who is it for? Mm. And how big a deal is it? So if you have to like slap together a few figures to show your PI just to decide on tomorrow's experiment, ignore this. You know, you don't have to make it look beautiful. But if you're giving seminar at a university or you're doing your your dissertation defense, you know, invest a little bit more. Or a job talk. Or a job talk. Um one of the things, you know, one of the next things to think about is what is the room like? So are you doing this in the auditorium? Are you doing this in kind of a conference room setting? And one thing I'm starting to see is people shifting to, at least at my work, we're shifting to the 16 by 9 aspect ratio. So we're not doing the, the 4 by 3 kind of narrow slides anymore. If you make all your slides and then find out you're presenting on 16 by 9, you're either going to have a tiny little presentation sitting in the center of the screen or you're going to convert it at the last minute and everything's going to get stretched sideways. It's going to look terrible. So I have a question about that, Dan. This is part of my technological ignorance. But does the aspect ratio have to do with the projector itself? It's the projector and the screen. So if you're presenting, let's say, onto a TV, I've seen that in conference rooms before where you know you can get a 70-inch yeah. screen. Um, so that's the, that's the format of TV screens now. 
Um, but a lot of the overhead projectors that we had when we were in school, and I think they still exist. Oh, they do. They're four by three. And if you don't choose the right format and you try and convert it at the last minute, it really looks terrible. It, things will jump all over the place. So just decide up front and it's going to save you a lot of time. Yeah. And if you're giving a presentation at your university, chances are you know the room. You've probably been to other talks there. Uh, but if you happen to be traveling somewhere else to give a talk, maybe at a meeting or at another university, just ask the person that you've been coordinating with to set up the talk. Say, hey, what's what's the room like? I'm working on my slides. What's the room like? Really great advice. 16 by nine. Yeah, decide beforehand because if you show up and, and do it at the last minute, you're going to be totally stressed out. And the other reason to really pay attention to what kind of room you're in is because if people are sitting 30 feet away from the screen, uh, you're going to want the font sizes to be larger. And that's a very common piece of advice to make sure that it's legible from the back. Now, I, I hear that advice a lot. Is there really ever a time or a room configuration where you would have small font sizes? It seems like, in general, that would be... Or when in doubt, you should always just have decently large size fonts. Yeah, I think that's true. Although, sometimes you can share your presentation on a laptop while you talk somebody through it at a table. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's a little bit less important. But again, you probably made that presentation for something else. You don't just make it to show somebody at the table. I just do size 72 for everything. It's perfect. All your access labels are 72. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Page That's right. numbers are 72. <laughs> yeah, when I wrote my dissertation, it was 3,000 pages long. Yep. Um, the other thing you can do is to make an outline because every minute you spend making an outline is about six hours you don't spend making a slide that you don't need. Um, I don't know how many times that I've done this where... I'll start jumping in and I'll make the slide and then I'll start to put together the other slides and then I'll realize, actually, I didn't really need that one. Why did I just spend two hours on it? But then you get into the trap where you say, but I spent all that time on it. I can't take it out. I better leave it in. And that is the death of a good presentation. Yeah, you're like, this is a great slide. This is a great slide that has nothing to do with the rest of the talk, but I can't take it out. Yeah, and I'm thinking... I can't think of a time when I was in a seminar presentation where I thought, that's a great slide that has nothing to do with, but I appreciate that slide for that slide's sake. Yeah, it, it's just, it's sunk cost and you and you feel like you should leave it in and you really shouldn't. So pencil it out, you can erase it and, and you haven't lost anything. Yeah, I love that. Make an outline, putting in the time up front will save you time during the rest of the process. Yep. So there are ways to make your outline really easy to put together. There are some frameworks, and I'd like to save it for another show just because I think it could take a whole episode to talk about how to make your science into a story. Um, But again, write it out. And then what you're going to do is you're going to see at each kind of bullet point or each place in your outline, you're going to need an image or an idea. So in a lot of cases, this will be the figure that you want to show that represents the data. But sometimes you're going to want a diagram or you're going to want an image kind of representing this concept. And so take the moment right then to brainstorm some ideas about what's a good way to represent this. I need to explain this molecular pathway. How am I going to draw that out? And just sketch it because that's going to save you a lot of time dragging shapes around in PowerPoint. One thing, Dan, that came to mind as you're talking about outlining out these ideas that you want to get across in your presentation is I think this would really help with the idea of just having one main idea per slide. Yes, thank you for saying it. There's nothing worse than the slide that the person puts up 
and talks about for 45 minutes. Like, don't do that. Please don't do that. One important idea per slide. Yeah, don't try to have point A, point B, point C. One slide, make a new slide. Yeah, no one's going to be with you after point B12. (laughs) Also my favorite vitamin. Excellent. So you're getting close to actually putting uh, your your PowerPoint slides together now. Start thinking about... um, what kind of colors you're going to use. This is the part where you start to think about the design and how it's going to be shaped overall. So you're going to need a color palette. Um, I prefer to keep most of the content pretty muted, so pretty neutral colors, but you're going to want at least one accent color so that it stands out. So if you're highlighting a particular result or a certain bar in your bar graph, make that a warmer color or something that's more forward. Make everything else maybe a more neutral color, grays and blues and and lighter tones. Um, And please, 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 Remember that a lot of your audience is actually colorblind. Yeah, so along those lines, Dan, um, you know, I think the major one that I know of is the red-green colorblind. So you want to make sure, and especially in figures, because I think a lot of times colors default to red and green. So if you're trying to contrast two different data points or two different samples and one bar is red or one line is red, the other line is green, you have to keep in mind certain members of your audience won't be able to distinguish and also, Dan, I think it's unfortunate, but my field, I know there's always a lot of immunofluorescence. And the default yeah, it's always contrasting colors are red and green. <laughs> Although I assume there are other ways digitally, you know, you can change those colors. I think with good imaging, image editing software, you can change those colors to something else. Um, you know, we assume that because we are not colorblind, nobody else has a problem. But the reality is something like 8% of men are colorblind. And that that comes out to 4% of the overall population. You know, it's, it's not fair to have 100 people and leave three or four or five of them out. So especially because you have total control over it. So please go fix that. Yep. Great advice. If you need help with colors, I really like color.adobe.com. It'll help you choose color palettes. Um, you can see palettes that other people have chosen. And you can do things like pick things uh, that are kind of monochromatic and then an accent color, and it'll actually help you do that. Yeah, and really, simplicity is key here. You don't need seven or eight colors in your scheme. You really need muted neutral background color and really one at most two accent colors that you're consistent with throughout the whole presentation. Yeah, this is not a bag of Skittles or a, a unicorn flying across the sky. This is this is science. Um, and with that, keep your background simple. You know, most uh, PowerPoint templates drive me crazy. Oh, yeah. First of all, there's things swooshing all over the background, across the top bar, across the bottom bar. And then you're losing like 30% of your screen real estate to this garbage that just sits on every slide. Yeah, why, why are those default templates always, why do they always have a random line that goes across the screen 33% of the way down through the slide? I don't know. It, <laughs> Who made those? Well, I think that it must come from the business world where you're like, okay, here's the title of my slide and here's the conclusion of my slide. I need to hold these spaces. But it, it just for me, it does not work for scientific presentations. Please leave it out. Never use it. Don't. Um, I think you can have a spot where people can expect to find maybe the conclusion of that slide, uh, but you don't need to give up a third of your real estate for that, obviously. So now I think we're at the place where you can actually start to put together your PowerPoints. Um, And you're going to be really, really tempted, like we all are, to use the PowerPoint as your crutch. So 
oh, I've got to give this really complex description. Let me just put down 14 bullet points with 35 sub points. And let me tell you that it, guns don't kill people. Bullets kill people. If you put up a slide that has 82% text, everybody's going to check out immediately. Yeah, I think the bulleted list really can rock you into a false sense of security because I think most of us realize, okay, putting up a paragraph of text, that's bad. But a bulleted list, that's really easy for everyone no, to follow along with. It's the with. same thing. This is I'm our, summarizing. Yeah, you're not summarizing. This PowerPoint is not your reference. If you need notes, keep them somewhere else. And just recognize that our brains actually cannot listen and read at the same time. If you don't believe me, turn on our podcast, pick up your favorite scientific article that happens to be nearby and try to do both. It is absolutely impossible. And so when you put up all these bullets, people want to read them. They think, oh, this must be important. But as they are reading what you put up, what you designed into your PowerPoints, they're actually ignoring what you're saying. I think that's great advice, Dan. So then I guess my question is, what instead? Yeah. Use pictures. Use figures. Use diagrams. The reason you're putting slides up is to do something that your voice can't do, which is to show them something. Um, you know, I don't know if you had this experience, Josh. Have you ever gotten the PowerPoint and, and the person is going bullet by bullet and you've actually read faster than they talk? And you've read the whole slide and you're like, uh, checking your watch. Uh, oh, I, I actually love that, Dan, because then I can check my tweets. Yeah, exactly. You're not paying attention anymore. Maybe they're adding really useful content to those bullets, but you've already checked out. And by the time they get to the punchline at the bottom, you're bored. Yeah, I actually secretly am entertained when people are going through slides of bulleted lists because it's really, really funny. It's a game for me to see how people try to paraphrase the text that they've written out in the bullets. Like they'll replace a an article here or maybe a synonym there. As and if they're pa- they're like plagiarizing <laughs> themselves and they're afraid of saying it exactly the same way they wrote yeah, it. Yeah, because I think everybody knows, oh, don't read the slide. Oh, yeah. But effectively, they'll change like two or three words and think, oh, summarizing my sub. I don't know. It, it amuses me. Yeah. I mean, if you're describing a pathway, you don't need a bulleted list. You need to show it. I mean, represent it in a diagram. If you did an experiment, show me the results. I want to see the gel. Tell me what it what it does. Um, if you need to introduce a certain strain of yeast and give me some of the the interesting characteristics of it, I think there's a place for maybe listing one or two of them, but have those reveal as you're saying them so that I'm not way ahead of you. You know, really reserve that for when you absolutely need it. Yeah, I don't know if this is relevant, but, you know, I've presented at meetings before where the goal is for people to really collaborate, share information um, and for the meeting itself to be a starting point. And so often in those instances, all of the presentations are compiled and shared with people to have as a reference later. In a situation like that, I could see a little more utility to the bulleted list that can stand on its own because perhaps those slides are not just being used as a presentation aid, but also um, as a reference to be read later on. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, and that leads to... I think two presentations. There's the one that you present and then there's the one that has additional notes that you can send out. It doesn't mean you have to have, I mean, most of those slides are shared, but it's super easy to put together a bulleted list in addition, um, but but don't present that as you stand up and talk. 
Yeah, and you know, I think about places we've seen really effective presentations that stick with us. You know, the two things that jump to my mind are Steve Jobs and Apple, and I think of TED Talks, right? And both of those venues have some of the most minimalistic slides where really it's about the speaker and the slides lift up the speaker. Uh, They work for the speaker, not the speaker working for the slides. Yeah, the slides are always behind the speaker. And as they're talking, this image pops up and it shows you something that they're saying, but in a very visual way. Mm -hmm. I think TED Talks are a great place to go for inspiration on slide design. So as you're making these images, as you're putting your, your pictures together, just there's a couple of guidelines I want to make sure that you're following the standards and conventions of your field. So um, I did a lot of immunofluorescence, and I know you did too, Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, actin is red, right? It's rhodamine floydin. Yep, I imagine it in my cells as uh, these bright red fibers. Dappy is blue. If you show me green dappy, I'm going to really be upset and not know what's going on. Um, and from slide to slide, make sure that you're using those consistent color patterns. So if your protein of interest is, is labeled green or blue or whatever it is in the first slide, make sure that persists so that it's not um, shifting from slide to slide and people have to read the legend and they get confused about what it is they're looking at. Yeah, and I like to actually, if possible, maintain that color consistency as you switch from one type of experiment to another. So let's say you're doing immunofluorescence and you're tagging your protein blue or green or, or red, or let's say you're contrasting a green protein and a red protein immunofluorescence And then you have a graph. Why not make protein A green still and protein B red still? Although now this is going against everything I just said. Yeah, but the example is right. The example is (laughs) right that I now have a a reference point. I have an intuitive sense of what that bar is trying to show me because I just saw a picture one slide ago that had the same color scheme. I think that makes a lot of sense. Your audience is just going to have that much easier time following what you're trying to say. Once you've followed those conventions, once you've used the same thing, Think a little bit about what background color you want. This is a a pretty subtle tip, but if you're doing a lot of immunofluorescence, you may want black backgrounds because what you're doing is you're showing this very dark picture with a little bit of blue or green highlight in it. Um, If your background is bright, stark white, you're actually kind of like blind, not blinding the audience, but their eyes are not adjusted to these dim pictures. So you may want to have a really dark colored background that just gets their eyes adjusted and ready. Yeah, and I will say, you know, in doing a lot of immunofluorescence um, as a grad student and postdoc, I was never a fan of dark backgrounds in general for my personal slides. But when I would then show immunofluorescence images, I would make that slide a black background. Yeah. And you can use neutral grays and, and some darker colors that are just not quite so stark. If you're going to use images, like you go to get images off the web to represent some ideas, please do not use the clip art that comes in Excel or not the clip art that comes in PowerPoint. It's usually pretty cheesy and terrible. Um, What you really want to aim for is animated GIFs. Nothing but animated (laughs) GIFs. I did a whole presentation of animated GIFs. Did you really do that? I didn't really do that, but it would be funny. I think it's, yeah, it's possible. You could do it. So you want your images to look like they come. Do you say GIF or GIF? I say GIF. Huh. I've always said GIF, but... Yeah, most people say GIF, and I've heard lots of arguments. I think the inventor says GIF, but everybody says he's wrong, so... And what does he know? Exactly. He just named it. Carry on. Um, you want them to look like... These images to look like they came from the same set. So you don't want a picture with a, you know, a white background and then one that's a photo of somebody off in some trees, and, but it looks really messy, and it looks like 
you just grabbed a bunch of pictures and put them all together. So if you can, try to make them look like they come from the same set. Like the clip art that comes with PowerPoint, it's not, it's not cute. It's not funny. And uh, I would say at, at this point, most people know, hey, that's the clip art that came with PowerPoint. Exactly. <laughs> that was literally yeah. the least he could do. Absolutely. When you're putting your images in and you need to resize them, make sure you're scaling and cropping them. Never, never skew them. Drives me crazy when I see somebody's taking an image, especially if it has text in it, and they've skewed it. So now they've compressed it um, left to right or top to bottom. And now it's just out of proportion. It's really obvious, really noticeable, really easy to avoid. Yeah, and just to make sure people know, you know, one easy way you can avoid that is when you click on the image and you want to drag it to make it larger. If that's the shortcut you use to do it, you can hold in the shift button when yep. you drag it and that will maintain the proportions. Use that little corner drag button and the shift button. That'll get you there. One of the things I think really helps put together a PowerPoint, especially if you're just getting started on designing better PowerPoints, is to lay out a grid. So you can turn on the grid lines. Um, it depends on whether you're using Mac or PC. On, on Mac, it's Control, Option, Command, G. And you'll get these little blue lines that you can slide around. And they'll stay where, where you put them from slide to slide. So laying out a grid really allows you to define the edges of, of certain elements. So if you want to put your graphs in a slide, make sure that they all line up. And that way, when you're shifting from slide to slide, it doesn't feel like the content is kind of like jumping around. It's actually pretty disconcerting. You won't be able to, to put your finger on why it feels weird. But as a, an audience member watching this, every time somebody changes a slide, if things like jump to the side subtly, um, it can be really distracting. That grid's going to help you to lay things out um, and get them in the same place every time. Dan, I have a question. What do you got? So I want to know your opinion on slide transitions. Oh. Because I know most of what you see is just the default, the slide just switches to the next slide. But there are actually lots of slide transition options. I actually went to a talk recently where someone had chosen the random slide transition option. <laughs> that was a mistake. What is their name? <laughs> I will hunt them down. I will not say, but uh, it became kind of uh, <laughs> it became kind of interesting to see is the slide going to spiral off the, to the left or is it going to open like a window to the next slide? I don't know. Tell me, Josh, what do you remember about that talk? <laughs> I remember that. You remember that and that is too bad. Uh, but I will say, you know, I have also seen it be kind of cool when used consistently with something that's not too overwhelmingly animation-y like the fade, either the dissolve out or maybe even the shift off to one side. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, I, I have some strong thoughts on that, as you can probably tell. I think the default transition should be fade. And the reason is because it's kind of a gentle switch into the next slide. I think the the just instantaneous switch, it's a little bit jarring. Um, I will tell you that if I see you boomerang a slide, I will come find you. I will hunt you down. I will know you did it, and I will come find you. I do you. nothing but mosaic. Yeah. Um, but there's this cool thing. You So once you have this baseline of really consistent, non-intrusive slide transitions, you can actually do something that illustrates a point with a slide transition. So imagine for a minute that you have a, a an experimental timeline, and you want to, you know, you've got that bar kind of across the bottom, and you're marking time points. So at 8 a.m. I did this, and on 2 p.m. I did this. And then you need to go to the next day and show what that looks like. 
If you use that push transition into another slide and keep the bar kind of running off the edge, as it pushes, it'll look like a camera is panning across the much bigger slide. I don't know if uh, I'm going to have oh, to that's cool. put it together. I, I, I can imagine what you're thinking. And show you. Yeah. So you use this push transition. So it almost looks like um, you're a movie director who is scanning across this horizon and it scans into the next slide and, and people have a, a visual memory of where they just were. So you can actually use these transitions to actually establish your point um, rather than just being distracting. Yeah. I hadn't really thought much about that, Dan. So you're saying there actually could be times when some of these transition animation types could serve the specific transition from one type of slide to the next. That's right. Imagine you're talking about transport from outside the cell to inside the cell. Now, what if you know there's this pathway outside of the cell and a, a metabolite happens to show up and it gets transported in and that slide pushes up and now you're looking inside the cell and you see what happens to that metabolite. I think that's the kind of transition that you're using to, to actually reinforce your point rather than just being a random window shades. Yeah, and that makes the whole experience so much more immersive for the audience member. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to instantaneously understand what it is you're trying to do. Okay, so along those lines, what about animations? So animations, again, if I see you boomerang, I'll find you. Animations should be used to, again, reinforce your point. So if you need to put together a diagram of a cellular pathway, use an animation to build it piece by piece so that you don't just throw it up there and then kind of slowly talk to the different points. If you can let each of those parts in the pathway come in as you describe them, then people are with you the entire time rather than ahead of you or behind you or just kind of checked out. I want to also mention, don't just think about those types of animations for diagrams or for um, schematics, but for figures, for data slides as well. If you've got a really complex data slide, let's say you've got bar graph that has 10 bars on it, you're not going to talk about all 10 bars at once. Have that build as you go along, because as soon as you throw a graph up on the screen, everybody in the audience immediately is going to start interpreting the graph. And they're not going to hear you set up what the question is, what the experiment was, was that was being done, what the axes actually are. So use these animations to your advantage, I think, also on data slides. Yeah, I love that. And I can just imagine somebody putting in experimental design and then here are the controls and then wham, here's my experimental condition. Like you can, you can build suspense. You can lead the audience down this path that really takes them along with you. Yeah, I like to think of it as you can use PowerPoint to control people's minds. Yes, finally. <laughs> you know, you want to be in, as the speaker, you want to be in control and you can really use animations to your advantage to really make sure that your audience does not get ahead of you. And maybe that's a lot of what we're talking about is you want to keep the audience where you are. You want them listening to what you're talking about at that moment and have your slot, what shows up on the slides really serve what you're saying. Yeah, you can control their minds. You can shut them off immediately as they all go to sleep if you do it the wrong way. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's really important to use these tools the right way. I think there is no such thing as a cute or a funny animation. Um, again, these animations came out 20 years ago. We've all seen them. And you're not the first person to discover the like slide in and it screeches to a halt and kind of falls over animation. I will say I checked out the Mac program Keynote a yep. couple times. There are some pretty cool, badass animations there. Fine. Uh, you did not invent those. They are not new. They are not cute. Let me let me ask you if this is 
I thought this was cute. A few years ago, I introduced this big experiment I'd planned, this hypothesis that I had. And then basically the end result was, the result was nothing like at all what we thought. And six months of work was for waste. So Keynote has an animation where something can go up in flames. Oh, I, I would like the swirling toilet animation. <laughs> well, that, that was the best thing. So when I showed the result, I had the graph just go up in flames. That's pretty funny, right? To whom were you presenting this? I was like a departmental seminar. Okay, I think that's fine. Yeah. I, I, you know, your department will probably have a little bit more sense of humor. I didn't use that on my on my job talks. Yeah, if that were every transition you did, every animation, I think people, even people in your department would get a little tired of it. So I think this has been really useful, Dan. And like I said, you know, we focused on the slides today. I think in the future we can talk about other aspects of presentations. But do you have any other resources you know, for people who are out there, because this is such, there's so many things you could talk about with making slides. Where can people go to learn more about effective slide making? Yeah, I really, I love that a lot of our listeners are at universities. And so I want you to take advantage of, if you can sneak out a lab for part of a semester to audit a class, take a graphic design class. You will not be sorry you did it. It'll be really helpful for the rest of your career. Um, if you can't do that, there's a great book that that I have referred to um, over the last several years since it came out. It's called Slideology by Nancy Duarte. Um, she runs a design firm that designs PowerPoints, one of which was the uh, PowerPoint that Al Gore used in the Inconvenient Truth movie. But really, really eye-opening look at how to put together slides, how to lay out your grid, how to choose colors, um, how to design images, things like that. And I think it's, you know, I keep it on the shelf at work. It's the kind of thing you're going to refer to time and time again. So see if your university library has it or pick up a copy. Yeah, and we'll link that book in the show notes. I audited two uh, graphic design courses while I was working for the university, and they were really, really fantastic. I, I'm not a graphic designer. I am worse than every single graphic designer, but I'm better than most scientists, and that's what counts. Yeah, and you can really get there. You don't have to... You don't have to have an artistic mind or a, you know this overwhelming sense of creativity. There's just a few simple tips and rules that you need to be aware of that'll put you in the top 10% of slide makers. Yeah, people will remember your presentations more than they remember everybody else's, and that just gives you that one leg up. And not for bad reasons. And if you can't get access to that book uh, at your library, you, you don't pick it up, uh, I have put together a little bit of a checklist for just for Hello PhD listeners. You can go to the show notes and download that. It just basically outlines some of the points we talked about today with a little checkbox. You can go through your next presentation and make sure you've got your grid, you eliminated your bullets, all your images match and they follow the conventions, things like that. That's great. I'm going to use that for my next presentation. I'm giving a presentation at a meeting later this month, so I will use your checklist. Off to the sidebar in that checklist, Josh, I've included a few lesser-known shortcuts, both for PC and Mac, for doing things like duplicating objects um, and for changing font sizes just from the keyboard, things that are going to get you there faster. Oh, that's great. I love the shortcuts I know, but I am not a shortcut guru, so that's fantastic. Get them. You're going to be done in no time. Thanks, Daniel. Etymology time? Let's do it. Word of the week. All right. Well, if you'll recall, last week's clue came from Megan Bond at Rice University. I am contracting out the uh, the word of the week puzzles now. Uh, so again, if you have a, a word puzzle, please send it to me and I will read it on the air. But the one she came up with was, samples treated with this process love to dissolve, though they might rest on the shelf for many moons. Dan, I have a guess. And I want to say I've not 
done any research on this. I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm going to guess dialysis. Ooh, and how did you come up with that? Okay, well, so we have the word, the lysis, which makes me think dissolve. Yeah, like apart. rupture, burst, yeah. And then the D-I-A, dia, I know means day. So oh. many moons would be like several days. I don't know. Dialysis? That's, that's a really great guess. Um, and the many moons, so again, this puzzle came to me and I had no idea what the answer was. She didn't send the answers at the time. So I got really caught up on this many moons. I was like, Luna this, or, or what is the word? So that was just a red herring she put in. Very, very tricky puzzle. Um, the actual answer was lyophilization. So that that's the freeze-drying process. Do you have a lyophilizer in your lab? Yeah, I did some of that. Yeah, so it comes from the Greek uh, luo, to loosen or to dissolve. And this is how I got it, is they love to dissolve, was the fill, the mm, uh, yeah. philos. So that's where it comes from. Fond memories of the lyophilizer. I one time was in a lab. It was my first rotation, I think. And someone started the lyophilizer, the motor burned out, and we evacuated the entire 11-story building because it set off the fire alarm. Memories. You you worked in that building, too. I think you guys yeah. evacuated it. Oh, people. we had so many fire alarms. I couldn't keep them straight. Great the, clue, Megan. Yeah, really great clue. And, and she sent me three, so I'm going to just read another one this week, if that's all right. Fantastic. The clue this week is, in the dark of the lab, this technique allows you to see a ghost. I'll read it one more time. In the dark of the lab, this technique allows you to see a ghost. So I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Oh, we should have saved that one for Halloween 2016. Yeah, it would have been a good one. Uh, well, maybe we'll reread it then. Dan, thanks for that. This was really, really a great show. Thanks for the great tips for making better presentations. I wanted to also thank all of you guys who have been listening to us the last few months. If you like what you've been hearing, we would love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes or a Stitcher or wherever you listen to the podcast. We love those. You know, we do this week after week and hope we're being helpful to somebody. But we really do read those, and those mean so much. So if you like the show, leave us a rating or review on iTunes. And also, most importantly, tell a friend or a lab mate about the show. We'd love to have them join the conversation. If you have an idea for a future show or have comments on a past show, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd or contact us on the Facebook page. Dan, we will do this again next week. And are you finished with your coffee IPA? I am, but since I got a growler... I've got enough for a refill. You got a little more. Something for breakfast tomorrow. It's got coffee in it, right? <laughs> coffee, IPA, and eggs. Okay. Breakfast well, of champions. We'll see you next week if we survive that long. Bye. <laughs>